0: Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think, any of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human who, being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but honour, glory and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for there is no favouritism among God's. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiments of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you trust to teach yourself? You who preach, you must, do not, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say, you must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So what advantage does the Jew have? What is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in any way. First, they were entrusted with the wo- very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, Will that unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar as it is risen, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, What are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved.
1: Well, hey everyone. Uh, My name is Ross. I'm the pastor here at Evening Church. If you're new or kind of newish, we're so glad you're here. Please come and say hi after church tonight. I'd love to get to know you and hear a little bit about your story. I'm going to pray for us, and then after we pray, uh, we're going to jump in and see what God has to say. So why don't you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. Father, as we come before you now, we pray that you might clear our minds. Uh, We come tonight. I'm sure with lots of things buzzing around in our heads and our hearts, Father, let those things be still so that we can hear you and respond rightly. Our Father God, remind us that you are God and that we are not. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was uh, preparing uh, this talk over the past week, I spent a bunch of time uh, writing my sermon in a coffee shop. That's often kind of my practice. There's something about being kind of in among the people, uh, kind of having that buzz of background noise that I really like when I'm uh, writing sermons. It's probably kind of the caffeine overload as well, just gives you a little spurt of energy. But anyway, I was down uh, writing my sermon this week and uh, I had one of those kind of eerie moments, I don't know if this has happened to you before, where I was working away in a coffee shop and then all of a sudden pretty much everyone else who was in the coffee shop left kind of all at once and then it was just me and two other people in this coffee shop. And because there was only two of us, and there'd previously been lots of us, the two people who were left were talking quite loudly. And I'd been listening to something, and I'd taken my headphones out a minute or two beforehand, and all of this meant that I could hear exactly what they were saying. And you know in your brain you think, I shouldn't listen. But then you do. So I did. Anyway, uh, I'm listening to these two people talking, and uh, they're pretty animated. One of them is telling the other one about a situation with someone that they know and they're quite worked up about what's happened. They're really angry and upset. They're both kind of shocked but also not shocked because, of course, this person did that thing. And as I sat there listening to this kind of outpouring of judgment, I couldn't help catch myself thinking, goodness me, I can't believe the way those two people are talking. I can't believe the things that they're saying about people that they love and care about. I would never talk about someone I love and care about like that. I would never be the kind of person who judged people like they're judging people. I just can't believe how kind of judgmental and and then I caught caught myself in the moment. I wonder if you've ever found yourself uh, in a situation like I found myself kind of hearing about something terrible someone's done or witnessing something that might be bad and thinking, man, those people are bad and I'm nothing like them. We find it all the time, I think, don't we? Uh, we uh, hear about things that happen in our community and we think, man, those people are terrible. Or we uh, hear about what someone in our uni class did or we hear about what another kid Uh, in your science class did and you think, man, those people are really bad, they're bad people. I'm so thankful that I'm not like them. You see, when we hear stories of other people's failures, it puts us in a really interesting position. It forces us to ask a question, doesn't it? And the question is, are you better than the people who do the really bad things? See, my guess is, as I scan this room around me, you all look like pretty good people. Pretty moral, nice people, the kind of people I'd want to be friends with. You look like kind of good people. And my guess is, no one here has really done anything super terrible. And so does that make you better than the people who have? It's kind of an interesting little dilemma that is important for us to think about. And it's really relevant for us as we look at this passage tonight because maybe as you heard the sermon preached last week, as you read over Romans chapter 1, you kind of had two conflicting thoughts. On one hand, you thought, yeah, I feel this, I get this, I understand this sin problem. But on the other hand, you kind of thought to yourself, I'm not sure this is exactly me. Like, I'm not really kind of dismissing God. I don't hate God. Uh, I've never really been rebellious. It's not in my nature. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I want to do the right thing. You never really have put yourself in the category of the baddies. You're kind of more of a goody. And that's just the way it is. And so you struggled to see yourself a little bit, if you're honest, in Romans chapter 1. I think that's a fair way of reading Romans chapter 1 in many ways. See, in Romans chapter 1, what Paul is doing is he's outlining what it looks like in terms of how some people sin and what that looks like for some people. See, there are some of us who run headlong into desire. There are some of us who kind of push God away and think, I don't want anything to do with him. But not everyone looks like that. Some people do, to some extent, acknowledge that there is a God. And they generally try to do the right thing. They kind of would see themselves as moral and good. And it's to those people that Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 2. So you remember he's writing to the church in Rome. And in Rome, there are all sorts of sinful people doing all sorts of crazy stuff that perfectly fill out chapter 1. But there's also people who would see themselves as good, Primarily, they're people of a Jewish background. And these Jews, they wouldn't really see themselves in chapter 1. And Paul knows that. And so in chapter 2, he moves his attention away from the rebellious God-haters towards the so-called goodies. And he has a word to say to them. And so as we read this chapter, we're really reading what Paul has to say to the good people among us. And really, in this chapter, there are three big movements. And each one of these big movements tells us something else that God thinks and has to say. And so as we read this chapter tonight together, as we look at it and try and think about it, I want you to be asking a question in the back of your mind. I want you to be thinking, is this chapter talking about me? All the way through, Paul refers to this kind of hypothetical you a good person and my question is is this you you well that's where we're going to go tonight but let's jump in uh if you closed your bibles open them back up let's have a look at the first thing that we read about the good guys chapter 2 verse 1 therefore every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. That's a heck of an opener, isn't it? Every one of you who judges is guilty. That's really what he's saying here. The good guys among us, if you judge someone, that makes you guilty. Now, the question is, what does it mean to judge? What's he kind of getting at here, every one of you who judges? Well, well, we know what it can't mean. He can't be talking about here the ability or the desire or the action of deciding what's good and bad in the world. Why? Because all the way through the Bible, God encourages us to do that. He tells us it's good to discern what's good and bad, to test things, to figure out what's right and wrong and to live God's way. So this idea of judging, it can't be about simply making right and wrong moral kind of distinctions. That can't be the focus. So what's the focus instead? Well, I think underneath this, uh, this verse is often translated as those who pass judgments. And I find that almost more helpful. See, what he's talking about here is judgmentalism. You guys might know uh, what that means in your head, but when you are judgmental, what you do is you move beyond saying that something is a wrong action and you start to say, not only is that a wrong action, but that is a bad person and I'm a better one, right? That's what we do. Think about me in the coffee shop. It's wrong to talk like that, those people aren't very nice, and goodness me, I'm a little bit better. See how that's kind of judgmental in its nature. And what's the problem with Jean being judgmental? The problem is, repeated kind of twice here, did you notice it? Have a look at the very end of verse 1. We do the same things. See, the reality is we're all actually like this, aren't we? We're all sinful deep down. We have our own human standards, which we say makes you good or bad, but then we break those very same standards. Years and years ago, a guy called Francis Schaeffer, he uh, he said, it's kind of like if you imagine having an invisible recorder that records everything that you say about what's good and bad human behavior over the course of your life. Just imagine that for a second. So every time you tell someone that it's wrong to do something or right to do something, it records it. Okay, imagine that. It's funny. It's probably in Francis Schaeffer's time. That was like totally ludicrous thought. Now it's kind of like accurate. That's probably, Google is probably doing that right now. Um, anyway, move on. Uh, imagine that for a second. All of your kind of ideas about right and wrong human behavior. Eventually, you make it to the end of your life. You meet God. You stand before God and he says, here's how it's going to work Ross." I'm going to play the record of what you said, not what anyone else said, not even what I said, but what you said was good and bad moral behaviour and we'll see as we kind of view your life whether you upheld your own standards. Do you reckon I'd pass? Absolutely not. Do I think any of you would pass? Not a chance. No one passes that, right? We know this inherently... We are inconsistent. We often get annoyed at other people for being inconsistent, but we're all inconsistent. It's the nature of sin in our lives. Even the best of people, even the goodies of the world are guilty too because we do the same things. thing is, it only gets worse as we keep walking our way through Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is one of those parts of the Bible where you take a deep breath, you open your eyes really wide, and you just kind of go for it. And that's what we need to do for the next little bit. See, in verses uh, 5 onwards, we see our next little thing that God has to say to the goodies. Have a look with me at verses 5 and 6. Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. See why it gets worse? Not only are we guilty, but one day every single person who's ever lived will face judgment. And judgment is a terrifying thing. In all honesty, it really is. Judgment is one of those things which we talk about only when we have to. We don't really like the idea. It's a scary thought to think that someone is going to observe our life and make a judgment about how we've lived. And this idea of us storing up wrath, I think is really scary. You see, the reality is, if we are unrepentant, that's the, the word it uses there in verse 5, which means if we do the wrong thing, and we fail to ever change our life and kind of acknowledge God and turn away from our sins, then it's like we are slowly but surely surely, every day storing up wrath. Storing up wrath. I like storing up things. I really do. Whenever I go to Woolworths, and there's a sale on cleaning products. I have this weird habit of just buying as many 50% off Ajax spray bottles as I can. I just get them. And then underneath the sink, I have this little collection of really cheap cleaning products. It's great. And uh, whenever we need one, I've got a backlog. Some things are good to store up. Imagine for a second that you're not storing up cleaning products. Imagine for a second that you are living a good life, but not really in a relationship with God. And every time you sin, it's like you're carrying around a bottle with you and you squeeze that sin out into the bottle and it just gets stored up. And every single day, you put into your cupboard another bottle of God's wrath. I don't want to store that up. That's not a good thing to store up. That's a scary thing to store up because one day the cupboard gets opened and the bottles are poured out. And if you don't know Jesus, that's horrific. That's really what verse 6 is all about. Have a look at verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Now, you might read that and think, wait a second. I've been around churches before. I've sat through plenty of scripture classes. I know that God is a God of grace. But the whole point of all this faith stuff is that we are saved by grace alone. So what is it talking about here? Well, what's going on here is that verse 6 is pointing us actually back to a psalm. Psalm 62. And the key to understanding verse 6 is actually in understanding what Psalm 62 has to say. I won't get you to flip there, but if you're interested, you can go and read it on your own. But in Psalm 62, uh, David is writing, and in the psalm at the end, he talks about how people will be judged by their works. The psalm before that is talking about the two groups of people, the good people and the bad people. And what's fascinating is the works that are spoken about in Psalm 62 are really unique, You see, the bad people's works is all about people who reject God and try to take down his king. That's what the works are all about. It's all about how they respond to God. And you can probably guess what the good people of Psalm 62 do. It's not so much about their actions or behaviours. It's all about how they respond to God. It's those people who trust God and find refuge in him. And so as we bring that back into this verse, we're reminded that the works of God, the works that save us, the works that he will repay, are all about how we respond to the king that God has put on his throne. It's all about whether we trust Jesus or whether we are against Jesus. See, that's the key. You see, it is a terrifying prospect to store up bottles of wrath if you are opposed to God's king. Because one day judgment will come. But if you find refuge in the king, Jesus is just secretly draining those bottles every single day. If you find refuge in him, there is nothing to fear. But the reality is, if we don't, judgment is coming. And God's judgment is fair. Because God shows no favoritism. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your nationality or your background. These things don't stop you from being judged. And they don't even mean that you're judged kind of more kindly or not. And the reason is that all of us, all of us know right and wrong, and all of us are guilty despite how much we know or where we come from. That's really what verses 12 to 17 are on about. Verses 12 to 17, they remind us that we know what's right and wrong because God has written it on our hearts. God has written it on our hearts. From the very littlest time in our life, we have a sense for good and bad, don't we? Like, I don't need to teach my kids how to lie. I don't. They just figured it out all on their own. They just knew because they didn't want to get in trouble because they know that if they do the wrong thing, they get in trouble. So the simplest thing to do is to lie so no one knows you did the wrong thing from the very beginning. They kind of have it there. They get it. They get what's right and they get what's wrong. That's true of everyone who's ever lived. It's written on our hearts. So whether you're the most learned Jewish scholar of the Torah or the most isolated, cut-off person in the world, you know what's right and wrong And therefore, God is going to judge you. And the truly horrifying thing is that he actually doesn't judge us by our own standards. You see, we might possibly have a shot if we were judged by that little invisible tape recorder, maybe. But God judges us by his own perfect standards. And none of us even come close the good ones will face God's fair judgment too. Now, you might be hearing this and thinking, I hear you, but... Like, yeah, but what about this? You see, we all do this, don't we? We're all masters of justification. We'll justify our behaviours all the time. And maybe you're doing that too. You're thinking, yeah, but, you know, I only do the wrong thing because this person made me. Or, yeah, but I was just so tired... And so, you know, it just kind of happened. Yeah, but we're great at it. And Paul knows how the psyche works. God knows how humanity works. And so he speaks right into this in our last section. From verses 17 to 38 to 3 verse 8, he's responding to the yeah, buts that so often so easily come to our mind. At first, he's responding to the people that he's speaking to. You see, he knows... Uh, he's writing to a church with a lot of people from a Jewish background. And so he goes straight to the things that those people would try to put up as a justification as to why they're not going to get in trouble. See, they might think, yeah, but I'm Jewish and God loves Jewish people, right? Or, yeah, but I know the Torah really well, the Jewish scriptures. I've got them back to front, inside out. Or, yeah, but... I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm a real deal Jew. God won't judge me. But what does he say? No. Those things, those good things, they don't save you. And the circumcision is really the place where he lands this in verse 25. See, circumcision, what it was, was almost like a status symbol. Circumcision was the thing that labeled Jewish men as part of God's people. And because they're part of God's people, that meant they were special. That meant that God loved them. He'd made a covenant with them. He would protect them and fight for them. But Paul says, circumcision on its own doesn't help you. Circumcision on its own is empty. I was thinking this week, it's kind of like uh, giant water bottles. And I know this is a risky illustration because I think there's probably like 50 of them in the room right now, but I'm just going to go for it. Uh, I think there's a couple in my house, so I own one, and so I think it's fair. Anyway, here we go. Uh, (laughs) Giant water bottles are funny. Here's what's funny about them, right? Because outwardly, they're a status symbol, aren't they? They're a status symbol that says, I'm healthy and I drink lots of water. But here's what happens with me, okay? I'm only judging myself. I'm not judging any of you. Uh, When I drink my water bottle, usually I fill it up in the morning and, uh, and then I drink it, and it usually takes me, I don't know, a couple hours. By 11 o'clock, my water bottle is empty. You know what I do with for the rest of the day? I carry around my stupid giant water bottle because it doesn't fit in my backpack, and I never fill it back up. And the thing is empty for the rest of the day. But here's the thing. If you looked at me and saw me carrying my giant water bottle, you'd think, he is healthy. That guy drinks a lot of water. What a good person. I wish I was healthy like that. I should go and buy a giant water bottle too. That's what you would all think. But the thing is, I probably haven't drunk any more water than the average person. It just looks like I have. My water bottle is totally and utterly empty. And so often, the things that we cling to to make us good before God are just the same. We say, yeah, but I made a faith commitment in year nine when I was at Kick," Or we say, yeah, but my dad, he's super committed at church. Or we say, yeah, but I still remember the words to the Bible song that I learnt in the parish room when I did kids church. Yeah, but but the problem is those things on their own, they're empty like my water bottle. There's something that we did a long time ago. But if there's no true and genuine and living reality of a faith and a trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they don't get us anywhere other than make us feel good about ourselves. And add to our pretty visage to the outside. Good things don't get you anywhere. Now it doesn't mean they're not good. that's really what chapter three verses one to eight is all about. They're good. And if you have a love for Jesus, if your heart is orientated and turned towards him, if you're seeking Him out, putting off sin, then they're beautiful. They're part of the tapestry of your life. They're part of the way that you get joy and others get joy from seeing these things that have happened and the ways that you've served and loved Jesus. But on their own, they don't do anything. I was thinking this week uh, about uh, a few years ago, I was uh, in the city. We used to live in Newtown. And often I would catch the train, not the train, catch the bus, into the city along King Street. Now, if you've ever been into King Street, uh, you'll know that the road built a long time ago, and so uh, it's not particularly good when it's raining. So I was on the bus, and it was raining outside, like crazy rain. And the water kind of pulls up on the side of the road. And as we were driving along, I saw this person outside the window, kind of dressed in office gear, and they had one of those tiny little black umbrellas. You know the ones you take when you work in the city, and you kind of they fit neatly in your messenger bag, unlike your giant water bottle. Um, And they're walking along with their little tiny umbrella. But it's absolutely pouring with rain. And so they've got this umbrella up above their head. But you know what happens to those tiny little umbrellas when it rains real hard? They just pop right inside out, right? And so there's this person in the pouring rain with people driving past on King Street, going in the giant puddles, splashing them with water, holding this inside out umbrella above their head, getting absolutely saturated, but still just persisting in the rain. They're just kind of copping it. I'm like, man, what are they doing? Why are they holding the umbrella above their head? It's doing nothing. But that's us, isn't it? That's what we do all the time with God. We're holding our little things up above our head saying, but God, it's okay because I'm, because I did this or I did that or I made a faith commitment. I'm okay. And we're just sitting there still getting soaked by sin all the way through thinking somehow we're going to be safe when our umbrella is useless in the rain. That's all of us, right? We're all soaked by sin. We hold up these things, hoping they'll protect us, hoping they'll save us, but they're doing absolutely nothing. At the end of the day, the only place for safety, the only place we can weather the storm, the only place that we can get dry and find security and safety is in the arms of Jesus He is our hiding place. He's our refuge from the storm. He is our rock and he is our redeemer. And friends, if you do not know him, you need to know him. But so many of us, so many people in our world, we push God away. So my question is, is this passage talking about you tonight? Maybe you've been here forever. You remember the awful red carpet. You've been through all the different names of all the different kids' programs. But the reality is you've never really turned from your sin. You've seen God's kindness and you've kind of taken it for granted. Is this passage speaking about you? Do you have a real genuine trust in God that will weather you from the storm? Well, let me give you three questions that might help you figure that out. Uh, These questions I've adapted uh, from some work of Tim Keller's, and so I'll give you them now. Question number one. When you think about yourself honestly, truthfully, do you recognize that you are a terrible sinner through and through, desperately in need of Salvation. Do you truly recognise that? Or are you are holding on to some other picture? Question number two. When you hear about someone else who gets it wrong, who does the wrong thing, in your heart of hearts, do you kind of shake your head and think, man, I'm so much better than them. I would never do anything like that. Or... Do you recognise that you are just like them, but your sin just plays itself out a little bit differently? Question number two. Question number three. Do you think that at the end of the day, deep down, there is no ultimate tape recorder? There is no moment when any of us are going to come before God. And if there was, you'd pass Because you're a pretty good person. Those are three questions that you can answer. And friends, if you answer those and you realise that at the end of the day, you've never truly put your trust in Jesus and this passage is speaking about you, can I encourage you, put your trust in Jesus. There is nothing better than knowing the security and safety found in him. But maybe uh, this isn't you. Maybe the reality is you do have a genuine, loving relationship with God. Well, this passage has something to say to us as well. See, so easily, once we're in, we can become very judgmental, I think. I think this is a real danger for us all. And so I would encourage us here to watch out for judgmentalism as it rises up in our hearts seems to me from my experience of life, that being judgmental is sort of like being human. They kind of go hand in hand. And this is a thing that we all need to fight. But I want to encourage us to not do that, to push back against our natural habits. And rather than respond to people's errors and sins with judgmentalism, to respond like Jesus responds. How does Jesus respond to the sinner's that he meets well, in lots of different ways. He's often really sad when people get it wrong. He's filled with grief at the state of sin. He's frustrated sometimes as well. I kind of like that about Jesus. He's frustrated at what sin does. But you know what he always is? He's always there to welcome them in and to give them hope and healing. Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This place should be a hospital for the sick, not a place for the proud and mighty. We should be a church that is so open that people want to come in, no matter what they're going through, no matter what they've done, no matter what their struggle or battle is. All too often, churches are places that people who are struggling don't want to be in. We need to keep on being a church that is open to the outside. We need to keep on being a church that welcomes people in. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't hold moral standards. That doesn't work, okay? On one hand, we try to do this. We try to think, oh, everything's subjective. There's no right. There's no wrong. That never works in and of itself. Anytime you do that, you just create a whole different set of right and wrongs. But the Bible always encourages us that we need to stand up for the truth, So we still need to do that. But as we stand up to the truth, we need to seek empathy, we need to seek kindness, we need to seek compassion, and we need to make sure that we're helping people to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, and all the same, providing a healthy community of hope and healing. Brothers and sisters, watch out for judgmentalism. As we wrap up tonight, I hope you've been able to see the way that God works in your life. If you trust in Jesus and you found that moment of salvation, what a great joy. If you are struggling, if you're someone who has always trusted in your own goodness, if you're holding that umbrella above your head, come back to Jesus. Put down the umbrella. Find shelter in him alone. Goodies are guilty too. And without Jesus, they'll face judgment as well. Amen.